Welcome back to the Resistance Broadcast, everybody. I'm John, that's James, and that's Lacey. Thank you so much for joining us on this special episode. First guest of 2024, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So we are so excited because we have a filmmaker, self-proclaimed Jedi, New York Times best-selling author, writer, director, nerd, uh, Kyle Newman is joining us in just a few minutes. Uh, we had a great chat with Kyle about the 15th anniversary of Fanboys. He took us behind the scenes of what it's like to make a movie and uh, that he, the experience I'm working on that and just being a fan of Star Wars. He gave us his take on new Star Wars. A lot of really cool stuff, right, guys? Bigger than that, though, um, breaking news. I don't know if anybody's aware. I didn't of get to answer. <laughs> Well, before you before before you even before you even answer, happy birthday, yeah. Lacey Gillerin, and welcome back. Thank Woo-hoo! you, guys. What everybody doesn't know, I've been working this till till my birthday. No, I'm kidding. Happy thirty third birthday, Lacey. I'm actually twenty seven mm-hmm. today. Maybe twenty six. I might be wrong. (laughs) Right. Um. No, it is my birthday. Yes. Uh. It's a good day. I've learned to like not overhype my birthday because you just set yourself up for sadness. (laughs) But (laughs) it should be a good day. I mean, I got to talk to Kyle today on my birthday, and that was pretty awesome. Which I uh thought. I've seen Fanboys like a while ago and I just rewatched it for this interview and I thought it was a fun movie, but I was more excited to talk to him about Star Wars because I've seen him over the years at like celebrations and working on different things. Um, He did the Smuggler's Revenge radio drama at the 2015 celebration and he did one, I believe, at the 2017 celebration, but I didn't get to go to that one. I went to the one in 2015 and it was just so much fun and to hear him talk about his creative process and like just how much stuff he's involved in like he takes creativity and um just like drive and hustle to like a new level and it's going to be i think for everyone really inspiring to hear someone just doing what they love and defending it like saying like this is what i love and this is why i love it and i'm going to stick by this and that's okay (laughs) and And it doesn't matter the medium i was so surprised with him He's like, it doesn't matter if I love it, I'll do it as a, a book. I'll do it as a TV show. I'll do it as a movie. I'll do it as a documentary. It doesn't matter. He's mm-hmm. so talented. He does all of it. Yeah, it was yeah. really awesome. He was, yeah, it was great. And, you know, you're going to catch a lot of things in this interview. We go for about an hour. We, we were originally just going to set for 45 minutes and, and, and we just had such a great conversation with Kyle and he had so much information and so many stories to tell. But he may be responsible for one of the I'm not dead character moments that is buzzing around Star Wars fandom. And he also made some pitches that he has for Star Wars movie ideas. So it's a really great chat. We hope you enjoy it. Happy birthday, Lacey Gillerin. Gilly, as I call her around here. (laughs) But enjoy the interview and we'll see you on the other side of it. Kyle, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, we're honored to have you here in the Resistance base. Welcome to the Resistance broadcast. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so excited. Uh, to kick things off, um, you know, we timed this because of this. The 15th anniversary of Fanboys. So I, as I get older, I'm 41 now. I feel like years go by quicker and time 
differentials just don't make sense to me. Like the Phantom Menace being 25 years old doesn't make sense to me. So for you, fanboys, 15 years, does it feel 15 years for you? Or do you feel like, I just filmed that thing? Like, what's going on? <laughs> in some ways, it feels like yesterday. In other ways, it feels like 15 plus years. You know, it's because um, we were making it longer than 15. It debuted 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. So it, I've been with it for 20, you know, and that's that's a long time. Um, I'm almost 48. So fanboys has been a huge chunk of my life. Um, it it took a few years. The first time I ever heard about fanboys too was 1998. And I was a student at NYU and I read about it on ain't it cool news. And I was like, Oh, I want to watch that movie when it comes out. (laughs) Flash forward, you know, eight years and I'm the one making it. Um, (laughs) It was crazy because at that point it wasn't a period film. It was um, a movie set in 1998 that Ernie Klein had written a script and was trying to make for maybe a hundred thousand dollars in, you know, with friends in Texas. And wow. um, gradually, you know, we, uh, Matt Pernice, one of the producers became attached to the script and Ernie and we all became friends. We all just started working together to bring this thing to life. So it has been a very long journey. So, but I look at pictures, we were just reminiscing all the, the cast and everybody's still really tight and everyone wants to do more fanboys. Um, but it's, it feels like yesterday. It's crazy. Um, and I, and I'm still pleased that people watch the movie and feel something from it, that it resonates with people, that the heart of it is translatable no matter what year it is you know it's not about the the vfx yeah they're talking about phantom menace but there's there's some truth in the, that dynamic between friends the camaraderie you can see yourself in the different characters that stuff i think is what what holds up and that's what's most important yeah absolutely you know and, and i was reading something about it recently where it was sort of there was a couple different versions of the movie but um the storyline of the uh the cancer victim you know, is that to me is like, this is what makes the movie, honestly, in my opinion, I, because you go through the whole movie as uh, just watching it just as friends, you know, doing their thing. And that's part of the storyline. It's kind of the motivating factor. But when you get to the end of the movie in the way that, that it ends, um, it means so much more than just like, you know, spoiler alert, but like him beating it or whatever. Yeah. Um, I think it, it just, it, it lands the movie in your memory as like, oh, I thought that was a, f- a fun movie. I didn't expect to be like, oh, this is like serious and I'm going to remember this movie for the rest of my life, you know? Yeah, well, that's good that it has that power to resonate. You never know when you're making something if it's going to land or not. I just knew that we had really good, really good actors and there was a really nice bond, genuine bond between them as humans and as friends and that was hopefully being captured on screen, the story originated from Ernie, whose mother had cancer, and he he started conject, conjecturing would what would happen if I didn't live to see Phantom Menace. There was a lot of buildup to Phantom Menace, and mm-hmm. so it came from a very real place, a real place of fear. And um, at one point, though, uh, I think in one of Ernie's scripts, Linus was faking it. He's like, I don't really have cancer. I just knew you guys wouldn't get out of bed and come with oh, me. Oh wow! And I was right. like, that can't happen. It has to be. It has to be real. And then when the Weinsteins took over, even after we tested the movie and it did great, um, we tested like really, really well. It was one of their best tested movies here. And they still were like going after this elusive, like 
95 in the top boxes. And that would have mm-hmm. really ruined the movie. Um, they were like, well, let's take cancer out. Maybe that'll get us over the hump. Maybe it's the cancer that's a downer. So let's get it out. And so they were contemplating with all these different versions of no cancer or he's joking about cancer again. And I was like, oh my God, you can't, you can't undermine the truth of a story. Right. Like hundred percent audience will feel ripped off. If you get to the end of this journey and he's like, I don't have cancer. Oh my God. It would be so terrible. (laughs) So they tried a version like that. They cut a version like that. Yeah. Because the movie was, yeah, and the movie was originally supposed to premiere in 2007, and then it, you know, there were changes and delays, and it didn't come out till 2009. Now, a lot of times on our podcast, we talk about the movie productions and the TV productions and how things change, and you know, things are happening, then they're not happening. And I know a lot of our listeners often question how those productions go. Can you talk about that a little bit of like how production, how, how much work goes into a production, how much that changes over time. And it's not, you know, you get the story, you shoot it and then it's done. You have to do reshoots. You have to do add, take it's, away, stuff like that. There's so much development. There's so much bartering too. Like a scene right. like the Mantina got me two extra days of shooting. Cause Harvey Weinstein, if you put a, the Mantina in and this, these guys have to strip at a bar, I'll give you extra days of shooting. So you're like, Oh God, the movie, I don't have a face as it is. So I have to write a scene and put this in here. There's a lot Mm -hmm. of weird deal-making, irrational deal-making with people. It's like, if you were to go, your pet needed surgery and you just took it to some people that are like, sure, I like animals. I'll operate on your pet. That's what it feels like making movies with most (laughs) studio people. They're not trained. Right in the art of storytelling, they're not versed in it. They didn't study it. I think it's a strange time when film is just a, a thing. People are like, well, I like it. So I guess I can do it. They just fall into this, this career. And I mean, let me give you a hint. <laughs> let me give you like, a, a couple of, <laughs> couple of movie titles, alternate titles for fanboys that we saw a hundred posters of fanaticoids. My greatest adventure Come tripping on. with an apostrophe on the N <laughs> There's a poster Dan Fogler and Jay Baruchel dressed like Tom Cruise in Men in Black doing that whole thing in the, the no. Pentagon room. There's one with Linus just eating pizza. There's another one with Linus with a video camera. Do they camera even the- eat pizza in the movie? <laughs> no, and there's no video camera either, but that was big. Kids filming themselves in a movie, like let's just put it on the poster and they were trying to obscure his face because he's one of the guys with cancer. There was a hundred posters. They didn't know. They're like, we want something simple. Something that speaks to the fans. Hmm. Something like Wedding Crasher. We're like, uh, Bamboys. And they're like, no, Fanaticoids. Like, it was like unbelievably stupid. You can't even write what it was. You, you're just like, please put that in email so in 20 years I can show people how silly you are. So you probably oh feel God. for these yeah, studios that we're hearing now that are shelving projects. You probably feel for that because you're like, man. I, I, I do feel to- for that. But ultimately, you know what? There's a reality to it, which is if I want to create art that I own, Mm -hmm. go write it. If it's poetry, if it's a painting, I can paint. I'll go do that. Mm. I am working in an industry that needs a lot of money. These people are benefactors, just like artists in the past and the Renaissance, whatever. They had to have a benefactor. They paid for them to live and work. They own the the, the movie, you know? Um, They own fanboys, so they could do whatever they want. They could ruin it. Uh, we, don't, we don't have those protections and I wasn't a filmmaker that could program those type of protections into 
a contract. And even the people you think have final cut, you know, in this industry really don't because they will leverage and threaten and take theaters away if they don't get their way. Right. Um, right. So it's not a business for the faint of heart and it's not a business for people who like honesty um, because we had a commitment to a certain amount of theaters. And then once, um, what was the movie? It was Kate Winslet and her husband made a movie, Revolution Road or something like that. And it got nominated for an Oscar. So Harvey then took our marketing budget and just shifted it towards his Oscar nominee. Ah. And our movie was coming out in February. So we were the movie on the schedule that just lost all the money and the screens and they turned our release into a roadshow release and they had a commitment of a thousand screens. Like, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? You know, like they just don't even honor your contract. So, Uh and that's why it was great that fans got behind the movie and then went to go see it as it rolled out into these different cities. But it's really duplicitous people that don't know honestly what they're doing. Um, and they really don't care about your movie and they really don't care about star Wars and they really don't care about story. They care about money and you just have to accept that. That was one of the hardest lessons to learn on fanboys. You're like, you're really going to ruin a movie to hope to get like two points better and no one that made the movies happy about it. They don't care if they, they right. think it like one wow. thing they wanted to do was open the movie with a crawl that said fanboys and then a definition, like you're reading a dictionary is like, a uh, term for losers <laughs> who can't get laid and live in their mother's basement. And then oh, immediately in the crawl, offend everyone yeah, who right. supported the movie for years. They don't care. <laughs> That's the kind of people you, you but, were dealing with. By the with. end of the movie, they want to, they're like, we are fanboys. They had to prove that they were actually fanboys. So that the, the thing at the beginning would be proving that they are these losers. And it's like, no, it's not <laughs> what the movie's about. They wanted us to put Harry Potter in the movie. And we're like, Harry Potter didn't exist at that point. There was no movies. There was, <laughs> they want us to put, there was that prison dance where everyone was doing like the thriller in like yeah. the, in 2006, that was like an internet phenomenon. Like flash mobs and stuff. In 1998. We're like oh. that didn't happen yet. There wasn't even you. What are you talking about? Like they wanted them to stop <laughs> at a prison and see this happen and us to recreate. They're like, they're like, Kyle, can you, you have a, about? Can you have the characters talk about their thoughts on 9-11 in the movie, please? Uh, (laughs) It was so bonkers. We, yeah, we were reminiscing about all this stuff the other day. And and you realize not much has changed in this business. (laughs) Do you think as a director at this point that you've actually, um, you've more or less learned to deal with that? Or do you think you better now understand it and so you can work with it? I know all about it. I can spot the people a mile away. My goal as a creative person is to avoid those people as best you can. But I, invariably, you're making a movie, you're going to deal with two, three, four hundred people that a lot of times I'm in charge of most of those people. So when it comes to casting and crew, I, I can find ways to... You're casting the character of a person or even an actor. I want to cast a good person who I want to spend months with, not necessarily who's perfect. If they're right. a pain in the ass, I want good people. And that will yield a better product and a better set, a better community. So you can, you can edit those things out of your life, but it's hard. You know, no one's bringing me Oppenheimer script. So if I get something, it's a problematic script. that's probably not perfect. Mm-hmm. It's probably like the alcoholic script that needs me to sponsor it, you know? and watch it yeah. and get it back <laughs> on course and help it. And there's probably problematic producers 
and you just have to learn how to deal with these people and be clever and get what you want out of it. And it's made me very relentless. Um, you kind of have to just stay calm and neutral. Know it's a two-year process and let things roll off you and just keep fighting for what you want. Um, it's always a battle. Yeah, so there, you, I'm always daydreaming of a scenario where someone's going to allow me to do what I know is right and can right. do. Um, but it's always second guessed by people who a lot of times don't care. They're onto their next thing or they barely know the project. They come in with a, you know, a comment off the cuff and then they think it's supposed to be translated into a reality, but there's no money to do it. There's no footage to do it. Um, it's, it's a one of a kind, strange business. It's beautiful too, because you can create these amazing stories out of nothing that combine all these incredible vocations of photography and performance and, you know, lighting and it's all amalgamated into something incredible. It's like the ultimate art form, but it's also one of the most impure. Mm -hmm. So it's, uh, it's hard. Fanboys was the epitome of, of impure. Um, but at least the core group of people are core producers, writers, and uh, actors really stuck together. And, and then the fans, you know, really helped will it into being. And it wasn't the version we intended at, from the outset, but it was close enough at that point in the battle we're like at least cancer's back in it and the spirit of what we wanted to do is there we're not going to win like a win so as much as you could win it was a win yeah yeah because yeah. there's over decades you know dating back to you know empire of dreams or what have you george lucas saying the exact same thing you're saying and from a huge movie perspective about how studios were taken over by these businessmen and then they were the ones telling people what they thought people wanted and that has just continued on through today so you could watch a 30 year old clip of George Lucas talking about this and I don't know if it's history repeating itself or history just being history and continuing on that this it's even is gotten the worse it's gotten uh, worse since then yeah. too I you know George actually had our back on the movie. And when the Weinsteins came and wanted to make it R-rated, he said, absolutely not. You have a contract that says it has to stay PG-13. When they wanted to take things like cancer out, he backed my cut. Um, he's like, I no, whatever whatever Kyle wants, do that. You know, he was like really cool about that. <laughs> because he knew the pain of this stuff, dealing, you know, what he had to deal with with THX and American Graffiti and everyone doubting him. Um, no one believed in him in Star Wars. Wow. He felt... And live that. And that's what shaped his career. That's why he went to San Francisco to get away from these people. Um, and ultimately, look what he did. He was able to fund his own movies, $115, $130 million movies. He's the ultimate independent filmmaker. And he has to answer to Amazing. no one. I heard a story the other day that he got all his friends together up at, up at Skywalker Ranch and he showed him a cut of Phantom Menace. And at the end of the movie, everyone was like about to give him notes. And he's like, no, it's done. Don't talk to me. Like he didn't want, everyone thought, oh, wait, you're going to cut this. You're going to change this. He's like, no. Nah. That's the life. <laughs> Why? He made it. He's like, no, I made the movie I wanted to make. So, all right, thanks for coming. You know? I love that. Um, <laughs> that's, you know, for better or for worse, that's, he earned that. He spent his money to get there. He he put his time in and he created an opportunity for himself to, to do that exact movie the way he wanted to do it. So that's why I have such great respect for Phantom Menace in the prequels, you know, and he did that all on this in the spirit of innovating the industry too. Yeah, no doubt about it, and clearly inspired you you uh, to be. I assume to become a filmmaker. I mean, people like even James Cameron were inspired by George Lucas, which is like Absolutely. bananas to think about. But it sounded like 
you know, the Weinsteins were like, they wanted you to make like another road trip, like literally the movie Road Trip. And it's like, that is a very, you know, it's a, a, a hard R. It is surface level. There is friendships, but there's not that moment that that your characters have at the end of the movie that you're like, man, I wasn't sure if this movie was going to hit me in the chest and boom, it just did. Um, but I, the idea of the road trip and the adventure and stuff, and especially like this day and age where like, look at us, the four of us are talking virtually and people do work from home and people yeah. uh, hang out because they don't want to leave home and they want to stream their movies and all this stuff. Do you feel like when you like look back at this movie now that it offers something more than it maybe did then because people aren't taking the adventure anymore. They aren't rallying their friends and saying, let's go do something. Um, no matter what age you are, I feel like it's something to yearn for to, when you see these group of friends pile in this crappy van and have the time of their life without knowing what's going to happen. Even seeing a group of friends hang out at a comic book store or a group of friends going to visit a friend at work at at the um a video car store or something yeah or a group of friends playing in Hutch's carriage house video games you know mm-hmm. i guess all of that seems strangely foreign now they would, now the kids would just play remote from their bedroom and they wouldn't hang out together and they'd have headsets on and they'd be you know lost um i'm glad you said trip. carriage house by the way instead of garage yeah the, the road <laughs> yeah. trip i don't know i really I mean, noticed that too. yeah <laughs> Would people do a road trip? Now, I just don't hear as much about that. I don't see people posting their road trips. If they do, it seems like an extreme novelty as opposed to the norm. Right. Um, it is. A, it, a lot has changed in the landscape, especially fandom, as in the, the landscape of fandom since the movie came out, and especially since the movie was set in 1998. Right. Um, and there is a greater lexicon of the breadth of fandom is just so much more vast the harry potters and transformer movies and lord of the rings and star trek rebirth and there's it's just endless all the franchises that have sprung up in fantasy and science fiction um now we're in the dune era you know there's it back then it was really star wars star trek and then you had those lower tier farscape babylon 5 oh yeah crap you know, like not my favorite, like I'll watch it, but like space 1999, like it was like a really <laughs> low bar. It was really like Buffy to... was like the other kind of fandom at that time. Really, Yeah. When it came to television and science fiction, there was really nothing. It's a very rich time for us now. Um, comparatively, you look at it and you're like, oh my God, every week is another show that looks like they spent 200 million on 10 episodes. And yeah, I don't know the time of the day to watch it, but where I guess... We're in a lucky time. I don't know, or is it? Or is it? Yeah. Too do you much? think it's gotten worse, or do you think it's gotten better for fans? Like, are fans more spoiled now, or or do you think they dive in deeper and hold on to their their fandoms tighter than they did back then? It's casual now. I think it's casual. There's fleeting fans. There's fans mm-hmm. that like. There's a lot of transients through fandom where people mm-hmm. they're not going to stick with it, but it has a moment and they're there and then they're gone again. Right. Uh, because there's so many things to jump to. It's almost like if you compare it, I guess, to like people and their dating habits. It seems like people can never settle because there's so many options. It's endless options. That's and, a good point. Yeah. And now you have endless options in terms of your fandom and no one's just stays in one deep lane. I think it's like attention span too. Due to social yeah. media and everything, the, our attention spans have 
gone down so far. I think Gen Z on average, their attention span online, I think is three to five seconds or like 1.3 seconds that they, you have to catch their attention or they move on to the next thing. It's created also a very subpar style of right. filmmaking and editing. There's patience is gone. It's all, it, it's style over substance in a lot of instances where, you know, the editing isn't even motivated by logic or emotion. It's just to create energy. And energy isn't really an emotion. And so, people throw out filler too, to explain like the episodes that have more probably weight to them. People say, oh, it's a filler episode. And you're like, no, there's meaning right. to this episode. And th that's the problem, I think, with some television. They're really, some of these things are two or three hour movies that are then decompressed into five, six hours because yeah. they can get more mileage out of their investment. They're not really worthy Obi of the... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, it's, it's hard. Like I watch more Star Trek Next Generation. Plug your ears, people at home. It's still a superior <laughs> show to anything Star Wars has ever done on television. It's just like, that's like home. That's like comfort. The camaraderie, the well-written cast, the simplicity, um, especially in an era of the world where there's supposedly no conflict, there's no backstabbing, there's no thievery, there's no cheating. They still manage to find great, intriguing stories and I feel like it's hard. Star Trek, I mean, Star Wars struggles to, it struggles with coherency, some of this stuff. It's just like, it needs, some of these these scripts need a second draft. You're like, I get what you're trying to do, but did anybody take it home for the weekend and work on it? Because I have no <laughs> idea what the hell Ahsoka and Sabine want. Who are they? I haven't seen them in 10 years. Give me, like, Andor's so well written. That show starts and you know what makes every character tick right. in a minute and a half. That scene they get, I know what, what who they're about, what their idiosyncrasies are, what they desire, what they fear. I get it. I watch Ahsoka and I'm on the seventh episode and I like it, but it could be better. And 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 Ezra turns to Sabine and he asks her for an answer and she's like, it's complicated. And that's your opportunity yes. to actually explain Oh my gosh, that, that moment. Mm -hmm. And oh, instead yeah. she just says it's complicated. And what I wanted to to do was, you know, start that show and know. She's not, she didn't want to train her because she was afraid that she would be a monster. And she spends the next eight episodes teetering on the edge of being vengeful or being dangerous and then showing that she has the responsibility to be trained. But it, it means nothing if I didn't know in the outset what her fear was in training her. Mm -hmm. And there's like no payoff. It just kind of is flat. Like when Ahsoka goes into the, um, uh, the world between worlds. And this is a beautiful episode with Hayden Christensen, oh, who's the best. Mm -hmm. I love that guy. And I'm so glad he's back. And it's this amazing episode. And it's like pulls on the heartstrings of everything. And you and you if you love Rebels and Clone Wars, you're just like, this is all converging. You get to the end of it, and you're like, what did she learn? She wants to live. Like you watched Empire Strikes Back, and Yoda says, It looks like what's in the cave, and he's like, only what you bring with you. There's like poetry to it, and there's weight or he do or do not, you know, there is no try. That's a life lesson. You take that with you the rest of your life. I'm sorry, Kurt. Mm -hmm. um, but you know what I mean? There's, it's incredible. What did she learn? What was she, what was her deficiency? What was she afraid of? She was afraid of dying? I don't know. I mean, I guess on a, on a, on a mythological level, I interpreted that as not so much the message, but that, that was her acceptance of the fact that she was the sister because you have the bird that follows her yeah. everywhere and she survived the battle with Vader improbably. 
in Rebels. Um, and they use that, the iconography of that same bird. And it was, I think that was her acceptance of the, and she was imbued with the blood of this, the daughter, right? Um, the sister. And maybe it was her acceptance of that, that mythological archetype in, in the Star Wars universe. Like if Anakin is the balancer and the father that he didn't want to be or didn't accept that role of, she, by him, by her being saved in that way, became intrinsically linked with that role. And then her emerging from that is her accepting of that role. But it's too intellectual for, you have to feel something. So then when she gets out of that void, the first thing she does when she falls out of space into another galaxy, lands on a planet opposite the guy who just said, I'm done and I give up, this is not my fight, and gets rid of his his learner inexplicably in the previous episode. Then he picks up a a saber and they fight and you're like, oh, she's going to exemplify what she learned from Anakin. No, she just does. I didn't even know what she did. They just have this nonsensical fight and then things move on. Like that's, that's where you then learn. It's the visual manifestation of what she learned in the world between worlds from Anakin or her own inner lesson. So I think these, these moments were missed. Um, on a basic level, it ended up really strong and I love the journey and it looked beautiful, but at the same time, um, it could have been better and Andor is such a well-written show, but also everything can't be Andor. You know, it's not, that's a very special show. Not everything can have that tone or that texture. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on the volume and how, when it, first was introduced with the Mandalorian. We, and it seemed like fans were like, this is incredible. They're film in camera and, and all this stuff that Favreau brought in from Jungle Book. And now it seems the tide has turned back again where they see Andor and upcoming Acolyte, which is you know filmed on real locations and real sets. And that clearly looked way more theatrical than the claustrophobia of the volume. Where, where, are you, where do you lie with the technology and... and the need for it and all that sort of stuff. I, so my, my computer's dying. So I'm texting someone to bring me my charger. Uh, so I don't leave here, but I look, I love technology. Technology is just, it's different paintbrushes. Um, You'd be out of a charger if you didn't have technology right now. It's we're There's so much fear right now with AI and AI. Like I don't, I don't necessarily love it, but I don't hate it. It's, it's inevitable. We wished it to be like, just like an iPhone. We wanted this and then we have it and then mm-hmm. we curse it. Like, there's a there's a point you can't be luddites about it we have to embrace the technology that we will into being and that's this is one of those things these technological innovations and you know the volume is really like a modern version of you know rear projection and you can just mm-hmm. do it on the fly i love the fact that you can light something and get the real color of the reflection in their eyeball and you can you know have that light wrap around them rather than just the green screen that that's gonna you can change your background a lot faster than even rear projection as well. And it's there. And I always found it funny, you know, when you have these Shakespearean actors that are used to like black box theater griping about George using, you know, wall extensions and green screen, right? Dude, shut up. You, you're a, (laughs) yeah, you're a Shakespearean actor standing on a stage pretending you're in a castle and you're in like Macbeth. There's nothing there. You can show up on George's set and pretend you're in a castle and there's nothing there and he's going to put it like, relax, you know? 
Um, it just seemed very rich to hear these these complaints from people. Let the guy be innovative and put faith. And you know, I had an argument the other night with somebody about Phantom Menace. They're like that movie's so plastic and it's all digital. And like, no, 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 no. No. There are twice as many model effects in that film as any other movie in the history of cinema. And like, no, there's not. And then you're like, look at this set. And I'm showing them pictures. I'm like that was that was a model. Oh my god! And it's because they sold the movie as digital that we bought it that way, and they yeah. sold the Phantom Menace as we're going back to props and real. When really the whole third act of that movie was a video game cut screen. There's not a single thing that was physically there, but we were told because that one little creature was paraded out on stage that everything was going to be puppets and you. You mean Force was, Awakens? Force Awakens. Yeah, it's how we sell the movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and we were in the middle of. You know, reading all these stories in USA Today about it's the most digital movie ever with digital characters. Come eat the digital movie, you know, and then it really was a model fiesta with all the yeah. rest model work in the history of movies on display. So he didn't really get into the the set extension stuff until Attack of the Clones. I mean, he was shooting in these beautiful palaces in Italy and um, when he was making Phantom Menace. So I find a lot of, you know, hard physical beauty in that movie despite i think what people want to attribute to it and i love the technology as long as you're using it in a way that makes the story better i don't like shots that fly impossibly through like you know lord i love lord of the rings fellowship of the ring is incredible but those shots where it flies down into right. isengard and sees impossible super fast camera moves that feel like video through doorways and stuff, and stuff yeah Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you're like, well, yeah, they go down into the lava and all that. Yeah, has such a great texture, and you do these. You're using this tech that takes you out of the movie. If the whole movie had that style, then I'm like, perfect. But you know, that was a movie. I, I didn't almost need that those shots. You know, so I like it when you you apply the technology that fits the tone. And with Mandalorian, considering its scale and how they were making it, there's great Star Wars innovation. Star Wars should be synonymous with innovation. It should be groundbreaking. Everything George did didn't just do enough to make money. He always pushed the boundary on what yes. he was doing. Right. Even Phantom Menace reshoots. He didn't shoot it in film. He shot it in digital so he could know what he was going to do for Attack of the Clones. And that's just the kind of guy he is. Always pushing the boundaries for everyone else because no one else has the stomach to do it. He has to do it for, for a whole industry. It feels almost interesting because Mandalorian is kind of pushing those boundaries with the with the volume and stuff saying, you know, it's becoming more the standard now ever since Mandalorian. But we saw all of the sequels do movies the way that movies have been done for a very long time. There wasn't anything really in yeah. the sequels that was like, holy crap, I can't believe they went way out of their way to do this technological achievement for this movie. And they're great, but... Like there wasn't anything that pushed movies ahead. Now that Force Awakens has done it, now that Rise of Skywalker has done it, that's how movies are made. And I love Force Awakens. I love the casting more than anything. I love who JJ assembled. But you look at a planet like Jakku and you're like, why does it look exactly? You have the best concept artists in the world, and we have fake Tatooine, fake Yavin, and fake Hoth. You have Natooine. You know, and why wasn't that? Why wasn't that planet like the sky should have been? You know, lavender radiated, and the 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 rock structures could have been oxidized with turk streaks of turquoise. It just looked exactly like Tatooine with recycled Ralph Macquarie concepts. And 
I mean, my mom watched it and she's like, oh, I love that they went back to Tatooine. And I was like, I'm not even going to explain this to her. Like, <laughs> my mom knows what Tatooine is and she thinks that's Tatooine. You know, like, they did a very bad job of delineating these worlds and making it feel special. You know, that planet, was it Dequan or whatever they go to? It just looks like Yavin with a jungle and a Masasi temple. Oh, Dakar? Yeah. D- yeah. Dakar. You're like, what, what yeah. is happening here? Yeah. Just Kyle, that's something different. That's how I that's how I felt about Ahsoka. You know, we're going to a new galaxy and we roll up and it's like it's rocky parts of Southern California. Like it's it, it's not the wild planets that we saw during Order 66 that I think you're trying to like allude to. So it's it, it was it was shocking to me, like all right, you want to do desert, do desert, you want to do snow, do snow. But if we're gonna to go to a brand new galaxy in Star Wars. I want to see some wild stuff. I want this. I want the the camera view to be upside down, you know. So <laughs> I was speaking like, to um, someone who worked on it, and I was asking them about this this planet, and they told me, "Oh, you mean the graveyard planet?" And I said, "What's the graveyard planet?" And like, "Well, that's the planet they go to. It's the graveyard planet." I was like, "What are you talking about? When did you ever explain that that was the graveyard planet? How does it, anything I'm watching that movie indicate that's the graveyard planet?" What are you talking about? And they're like, oh, that's the graveyard. You didn't know that? That was the identity of the planet, the graveyard planet. And I was like, the new galaxy where Ezra was? The new galaxy. The planet they end up on is considered a great, everything's dead there. It's a graveyard planet. And I was like, nowhere was that conveyed. Oh, because there's whale bodies and stuff, I guess. That's it. The whale bodies in space, but not the planet itself. No, it just looks like California. (laughs) I would have opened that show so differently. You open that show and you're on the tomb is being opened. You're on the back of a guy. He has blue ears and a white. You don't even see his face. They go into this tomb and there's this creepy stormtrooper guy like Enoch and you see his face and you're like, where the hell am I? And he <laughs> exhumes these three, these witches that were supposedly dead that he brought back to life or something. Right. Yeah. And then you cut to that woman, Morgan. And she wakes up from a, a dream where someone is in her head calling to her, giving her the calling that gives her the idea that she has to go across the world to this place. So you don't even see Thrawn, but you know, what is happening? Where am I? What world am I in? Yeah, and lean into that horror world. aspect. And there was, and instead we just, these two people show up on a ship and this guy is like, I'm going to teach these Sith a lesson. Get on the ship. Come on on. You know, he lets them onto his ship. <laughs> right yeah exactly what what self-respecting admiral in the republic fleet would let a a ship that he thinks is imperial land on his ship to give him a talking to it's just it was some of it was nonsensical and you're like oh my god (laughs) well you like so you like a lot of the nerdy stuff because i saw you have uh books you wrote about uh D&D, and you're working on, correct me if I'm wrong, but according to the internet, you're working on a documentary about uh, Dungeons & Dragons as well. Uh, obviously, yep. Stranger Things, massive hit based upon this game those kids are playing, Dungeons & Dragons. And, and I think it, and the it Chris might have, Pine movie recently, too. Right. And I think it might have introduced a new generation of kids into that. What, so what are your thoughts on that phenomenon, you know, aside from Star Wars, something like Stranger Things where they're talking about spinoffs and stuff? Is that something you would want to dip your toe in because you clearly have a passion for D&D? Like, I, what do you think about that absolutely. stuff? Absolutely. And I think what's great about new Star Wars is despite my deep 
gripes that I can talk to with you people because you get it. We all have our gripes. I, love it. I watch <laughs> all of it. I am glad that we have these entry points for new fans. I think it's great. I obviously, I just want the best version of Star Wars because it's my favorite thing in the world. So if I think it could be better, if I think they could have taken a week to write a better script, then write a better script. And I guess what? As a fan, I'm allowed to sit here and be honest and tell you that on a craft level, it, those elements were subpar and these other elements were great. And I'm always yeah. going to keep it real when it comes to Star Wars. I love Star Trek. I love Stranger Things. I love Lord of the Rings. I love all of these things. Harry Potter. I'm a, I'm a huge fan of the world building. I'm a huge fan of the communities that spring out of them. With Dungeons and Dragons, I was fortunate enough to I wrote a history book on it called Art and Arcana. And we've done two cookbooks. One of them became a New York Times bestseller. We're trying to create a more of a lifestyle around Dungeons and Dragons. Which one That's of so the cool. cookbooks became a cooking show. And we wrote another book called Lore and Legends, which came out at the end of last year, which also looks at the phenomenon of modern D&D and how it, how it became a phenomenon again via things like Stranger Things and streaming and Critical Role and these communities and these throwbacks that helped resurrect a game that was, for all intents and purposes, dead. It's an analog game. Why is an analog game thriving in the digital era? Why are people getting together with pencil and paper doing Dungeons and Dragons when they have endless computer games at their fingertips? And it's about... Right community face-to-face -face, camaraderie sitting at a table family friendship it's the things that a lot of these other things don't give you like just just raw video games that have they, they make you feel endless but they're not they have digital borders somewhere whereas Dungeons and Dragons the role-playing game is endless you can go anywhere do anything no one's programmed an invisible border somewhere you will never reach that border that's your imagination that's why that game is special um I'm trying to do more in the world of Dungeons and Dragons. I obviously would love the chance to work on some of these other things, but if it doesn't work out, I, I'm, gonna, I'm doing my own stuff. So, um, and sometimes that's more fulfilling as much as I love all these things. I also know they're hard to make. They're hard to work within the parameters of say Lucasfilm or Disney. They're hard to work on something where everybody has their expectations. What Dave Filoni does is incredible. It's also a challenge because so many people are judging every move, every word, every sketch, everything he tweets, everything that comes out. There's this increased scrutiny, which is nearly unnatural because of the pedestal that Star Wars is on. But, you know, with great, great power comes that great responsibility. So it has to be better than anything. It has to be special. It has to be the gold standard for fantasy. And I think Star Wars has forgotten that it's fantasy. It's forgotten that it's fairy tale and myth and we settle into these things and we want Star Wars to mature and age with us. We want Star Wars to be, oh, we want Star Wars version of succession. We want Star Wars to be like Andor. It can't all be like right. that. Right. Star Wars is a fairy tale. It's fable. It's mythology. And so much of that has been eradicated from the new material because it is trying to compete in a modern television market. Yeah. It's because everyone has forgotten the roots of Star Wars, that George was making movies for four-year-olds. Um, now we're trying to make movies for like 36-year-old disgruntled you know, people that have every episode of everything at their disposal. You're right. never going to please people. So go back to the roots of what Star Wars is. Did you watch the Willow series at all? I watched Willow, yeah. Because I thought it was definitely going back to that kind of thing, like romance. There's a lot of fun fantasy. stuff in, yeah. in Willow. Yeah, I like the cast too. There were some really good people and there were some really great episodes. A couple felt like D&D. &D. Yeah. But 
I just feel I like agree. romance is missing from Star Wars, like the whole romance fantasy aspect. You're afraid of, this. of romance. Yeah, Empire Strikes Back is a screwball comedy. It's like it happened one night. It's like this right. 1930s banter between two people that hate each other on a road trip. You know, there was romance and magic. <laughs> and now it's like, no, Star Wars can't have romance. It's like, that's well, not that's why- romance, romantic love, but romance, charisma, yeah. fun, yeah. spirit, right. heart. It isn't all Easter eggs and references. You know, right. now we reference Star Wars as opposed to what George was referencing was Lawrence of Arabia and Hidden Fortress and Dune and Flash Gordon. It was amalgamation of Westerns and all these things that didn't really ever sit well together. Um, all these different mythologies and spiritual thinking. Drag racing. Religion <laughs> yeah. and drag racing. Yeah. It's kind and of what Dun- Ernest Klein did with Ready Player One, who's also the writer yeah. of Fanboys, like throwing in all these references. Like that's what worked. And so now we're at this place where I think Star Wars, what we're getting is like Star Wars cover band. Oh, you know, you go to like, you go to like a street fair and there's a Beatles cover band. And you're like, oh, that's pretty good Ringo. You know, we're, that's where we're, we're at. We're at like Star Wars cover band right now. That's pretty good. It's close. Oh, they referenced Greedo again. Like, I want new. I want someone to come in, hopefully me, and break the mold open and tell new stories that people, you watch and go, I got to the end. Oh my God, that's a Star Wars film. It doesn't, it has all these tropes now that burden it, makes it inescapable. And what you have to capture is the spirit. You don't have to capture, this is a version two of this clone trooper. This is version nine of this. Tie oh, I this. agree. I, it's I'm cloned out. Man. Yeah. It's too much, you know, yeah. strip it all away and get back to what it is. The spirit of what it is. Tell me okay. a new myth. Can I ask you this, Kyle? Have you pitched anything to Lucasfilm? <laughs> okay. Before the before, what you got? Before the sale of the company, I pitched a novel that everybody liked, and then it couldn't happen because there was behind the scenes. We realized, okay, ultimately it was the sale right. that happened. I'm resurrecting a couple of these things. We'll see. Nothing. Nothing actively. Um, even things like I, I'd love to adapt the prequels and the sequels into radio drama. I was I just about to bring that up. I was at Smuggler's Revenge in 2015. It was so nice. wonderful. So I was going to ask you. you, because it was such a cool event and people really enjoyed it, is you've explored all these different kind of genres and mediums, like books and movies and this. Is that something you're really passionate about? Would you want to do more of that? Absolutely. I would love to do anything in the Star Wars universe. I would love to... Yeah, I would love to do these radio dramas. I'd love to do novels. I'd love to do history book on it. I'd love to do all of it, you know? Um, I'm not going anywhere. Opportunities may present themselves. I think they have a very specific uh, set of criteria for who and what they would like to work with. And they're definitely after very, um, you know, you got to be a fancy filmmaker coming off of like a $100 million hit, um, I think, to get ingratiated into that. Fanboys too? wheelhouse yeah um <laughs> and that's their process that's fine that's their that's their baby it's their thing they own it they can do whatever they want and and yeah. hopefully one day i'll get a chance and if not i'm still there as a fan you know um that said i fully believe in how i could invigorate it and help provide the missing link which i think it, it it's missing right now um there's just there's certain things that maybe aren't being 
noticed that's in the DNA. You have, to, you have to know where you came from to know where you're going. And it doesn't mean you have to exactly emulate it, but you have to capture the spirit of it. You like should do more radio tournament. dramas, definitely. Because podcasts are so to. popular now. You should definitely do those. Even then, I don't know if they want to go back to Phantom Menace and Force Awakens and stuff. Yeah, I think they're they're looking at new. They're looking at High Republic. I think they have different initiatives. Um, I honestly don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm speculating, but you it's... Know, Kyle- they're a big uh, machine was, and they're doing their thing. Right. The The thing you keep bringing up that <clears throat> seems to weave through all of your examples and like your approach to storytelling and correct me if I'm you know speaking out of turn on this, but it's sort of like back to formula for Star Wars, which is the relationships first and like believing that the characters believe in each other and care about each other. And that's woven obviously into fanboys, especially with the relationship between Linus and the group, uh, some dissension, but ultimately there's love there that is not expressed. And, you know, I, I was 16 when Phantom Menace came out, me and my friends camped out for tickets to buy tickets and we skipped school and we did the whole adventure. So a movie like fanboys hits home with me because it makes me think about those old friendships and like, Oh man, I haven't talked to that guy in 10 years or whatever. I think like, that is the root of this and why I love it so much. Like, I'm not a big science fiction fan. And when I tell people that, they're like, what? But I like Star Wars because it's fantasy. And you you keep using the word fantasy, yeah. and I'm totally with yeah. you on that. And to me, it it's, it's rooted in those classic archetypes and those relationships. And I feel like you keep bringing that up when you're talking about whether it's, you know, Stranger Things or, or anything else that you love. It's all in there, and it's a very basic template. But you're right. You can do something brand new with that template. So I would be very curious to see what you'd be able to come up with because I do think that is the root. And I do think sometimes we've gotten uh, a little too far removed from the root that is you know, what George created. I've got the trilogy planned that will that would change change the world of Star Wars. Well, what do we what do we have to Give do Kyle to help a movie? That? Give yeah, Kyle it was so awesome. Put me in the <laughs> and it's movie. It's so obvious. <laughs> and what I th- here's what here's one of these things that, that when you look at the DNA of the original trilogy and Return of the Jedi, there's a choice made. It's familial love. It's love that unlocks Anakin Skywalker. It's it's that love that neither the Jedi nor the Sith could anticipate that creates a new a new way for Luke. I don't believe Luke would have done anything he did in the sequel trilogy. Luke probably would have put his lightsaber down and he probably would have, after being a Jedi for three or four years, would have been back to Tatooine to be a moisture farmer. What about a wife? Probably never even told her that he was a Jedi. And he would have been like, I can't be a part. I'm not part of the forces balanced. I'm done. Maybe he would have gotten gratiated, pulled back in. But the choices they made in the last Jedi were subversion for the sake of it, not out of, not for logic or potency and definitely not as a, you know, eighth, eighth chapter out of nine or the end of the end of a second act of, of a saga. It didn't make any emotional sense, you know? I a hundred percent agree. It was a well-made movie. It just wasn't a great chapter eight. The love love Um, that I feel out of the sequel trilogy is more like, Han's love for his son, Carrie, yeah. you know, Leia's love for the son, or or even Ray in some regard, like 
the, you I know, it's debatable that. of the romantic stuff, but she obviously cares about and continues to even push Luke to be like, we gotta, we gotta save him. We gotta, do, you know, do something to, to bring Ben back. You know, she has this love for him in that regard. I think Ray is that Daisy Ridley, that casting, uh, fantastic. I'll watch anything with her in it. Adam Driver's super special. John Boyega was great. I love the whole cast. Um, I just felt like some of those elements were misused as it went on. It didn't mean I didn't, you know, I still enjoy and watch the movies, but they were very fascinating choices to me. And then I thought about them, meditated on them for a lot, and then challenged them and realized, yeah, I, I don't think they were, some of them were the correct choices. And as evidenced by the turn the brand has taken, um, when you look at Star Wars toys, you know, it's not the same. We went from like being number one boys toy or number one, you know, action figure toy in the world prior to Last Jedi to not even like top 20. I mean, nobody wants a Luke goes to kill himself on a planet action figure. Nobody wants a Luke goes to kill himself <laughs> birthday party. I, I mean... Kyle, I, I left that just movie for 45 you know, minutes and was silent. I was silent after that movie because Luke is my childhood hero from second grade. And I left that movie being like, I feel like my life's over <laughs> like right now. It was it was a hard one to swallow. And, and I, look, it's there. Yeah. It's, it's, it's now part of the lexicon. It's part of the, the sure. narrative. And we have to accept it and move on and then make the best of those things. And I, yeah, I have something I'd want to do that's set like 500 years after that after uh, okay blank canvas way far away from anything that anyone <laughs> is this, this <laughs> yeah. traffic jam that's happening right now <laughs> it's far from the convolution of this era we're in and it's completely fresh and force powers are different because there's no rule book and everything's different who's your favorite it, star wars character um favorite it's hard it's really hard for different different aspects i mean that's why i love star wars so much is yeah. because it's like the which day of the week is it which one's my favorite i love qui-gon i love obi-wan i love yoda i love han and i love luke i mean i think they're all cool i really love ray too and i love i love uh ben solo i mean there's a, there's some depends you know i'd have to say obi-wan yoda and qui-gon are really like an interesting spiritual trinity. You yeah. Know, the, the philosophies between them, you could really have week long discussions, you know, about Absolutely. the nuance of things. I like that. Yeah. I have to ask I, you this. Go ahead. Real quick. Um, just to add a little lightness to uh, the series conversation, but um it says on the trivia for fanboys that it was deliberate that Jay Baruchel was dressed up to look like George Lucas. Is that? Can you confirm that? Because when I watch it, I'm like, he looks just like 1973 George Lucas. Yes, that we we wanted a similar vibe there. That was Baruchel. Was I? I wanted that he was in for it. Um, it's not exact, but we always saw that in casting. That's why we liked him. There was like a comparable look to very young okay. George. I had yeah, I had to ask that because he had the tall hair and the black glasses, skin. And George Lucas used to be like really skinny. You know, people don't mm -hmm. like remember that, but yeah. So that's yeah. I'm glad you confirmed that. Thanks. 
And uh, my my final question for you, I wanted to ask, because you just recently did this documentary, A Disturbance in the Force, about the holiday special. And I was curious, when you are doing something like that and you're interviewing so many different people, what were some of the things that you discovered and you found out as a fan that you were like, I, I, I can't believe that happened. I have to put this in my documentary. Almost all of it. I knew a bit about the holiday special and a, and a bit about that era of Lucasfilm, but the most eye-opening aspect of that process was discovering our vantage point and the context. I mean, we, we realized that we needed to make a movie that, set the stage for what was happening in the 1970s, both in pop culture and on American television, and also within the fabric of Lucasfilm post-1977 success. Um, that set the stage for why it was made, how it was made. Yeah, You know, it was the context. guy like J.W. Rensler gave some of the best answers and such great insight into early days Lucasfilm, company culture, and yeah, we miss them. People, people like Patton Oswald, you know, incredible, you know, knowledge of pop culture and all those shows and could give really great insight into what it was like to watch television, you know, back then and what it felt like and how Star Wars, you know, didn't invent the variety show. Star Wars was just plugged into it. And that having that context and arming ourselves with that and then using that frame of reference, talking to all these people it really gave us um, an interesting way in because you could just sit around for two hours and make fun of that show, but that's right. not interesting and that's not kind either. Um, I had I the perspective that general pop population had watching your movies or watching that documentary to me made me feel differently about the holiday special. I was like, Oh, we've been, it's like a, a person that you've been making fun of and you're like, Oh, I didn't realize they were, brought up in a home like that or whatever, you know, it's exactly. like almost you have the understanding of like where it came from. You're like, we it kind of makes more these sense all, now. These were all hardworking people. Some of them were just doing a job, but it was their job and they take pride in it. And, and it was a collection of very talented people that may have been misaligned with this production. You know, maybe they weren't the right people to be doing it at the right time. And, and that format was an unfortunate format for, Star Wars, but the lessons George learned, I think, created a guy who wasn't going to lightly part with his creation, which is why he cloistered himself off. And then even in that gap between 1983 and 1997, you know, he wasn't letting anyone touch and play with his baby because right. he was not going to let another holiday special happen. And he wasn't going to take his, his eyes off the road with it. He couldn't let anyone have it. You know, and that this taught him a lesson. I think that changed the psyche of George as a as a creative and a and a businessman. Um, so there's a, there's a lot of important lessons in it, and yeah, it's bad. It's not the best thing ever, but there's cool stuff in it. And I think the doc was came out great, and I'm really proud of it. It's very entertaining, mm -hmm. fun. Documentaries are often so serious. It's about somebody died, somebody coke overdosed, somebody robbed somebody, someone has a pyramid right. scheme. <laughs> you know, it's murder mystery you know, true crime. It's just like enough. Can we ever just do something fun and positive? Um, that's what we set out to make, you know, something that could bring a little happiness to people um, and a little information, you know, why not learn while you're having fun? So 
Uh, we made it very inexpensively, truly independently. And um, we're all very happy with it. The George Lucas way on your own. Yep. You have to answer <laughs> to it. Now, Kyle, before we let you go, a couple of quick ones on fanboys to bring this full circle. Uh, Chris Marquette, does he still brag that he got to kiss Carrie Fisher and do the lines with her? Uh, because I, that has to be one of those moments where you're like, he does. That's a, that. that's a big career achievement for him. Yes. um and then i wanted to ask you about you know you had billy d and carrie fisher in fanboys um any highlights from working with them that you could share with people that they may not know i mean it was it was such a cool special time i think like before carrie fisher came down i had a couple phone calls with her we talked for like an hour or two at a time she was just telling me all these stories about you know marriage to Paul Simon and George bringing her <laughs> these Irma, like these, these buns on her 50th birthday and just like all these, you know, she was a colorful person and she was very sweet and she, you know, was a great storyteller. Billy D again, super creative guy with this long history and I got to have dinner with him the night before we shot. And then he, my friend, one of the producer's birthday was like the night after we shot and he came out to dinner for his 30th birthday. And it was just like a, a really fun storyteller, rock on tour. He could just talk and they were all like William Shatner could not believe that. He said, what's all this about star Wars and star Trek fans not getting along. I was like, <laughs> he's like, why are you making this? Up? I'm like, no, this is real. He's like, no, you're agitating it. You know, in a fun way. He's like, he, he thought it was like, this was fiction. We're like, no, this is like the rivalry. And he's like, oh, all right. And like, yet he, he fights with people online now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So he, I don't know if he was living under a rock or whatever, but he, he thought that was all new and novel. You know, that he was in the shadows. <laughs> like in your movie. So it was, um, yeah, it was like, I look back, I'm like, well, I've gotten to work with all these great people. And then Ray Park was in it. It was Darth Maul. And, you know, I've gotten to know Mark Hamill. He's awesome. I got to direct um, Samuel Jackson. So I got to work with him. There's so many people I've realized I've gotten to work with in the Star Wars universe. Wait, that- Kyle, mm-hmm. is Mace Windu dead? We, we've been talking about this and he's been talking about this. What, I think he's you dead. You want to know why he's talking it- about it? Because when I was on set with him, I said, you're not dead. And he's like, explain this to me. And I explained it to him and I said... <laughs> Darth Maul was cut in half, man. What are you talking about? You lost what you fall off a building. Like you couldn't land that. And he was like invigorated. I was like, you're alive. What are you talking about? And then he wanted, (laughs) it's your fault. (laughs) So he wanted to then do the voices in the animated shows. And I was like, that's you. You can't let other people do that. (laughs) Good. I put the idea in his head before they were doing shows or anything. So it's your fault. All of this. Yes, it's in the news all the time. It's in the news all the time. Because if Darth Maul is going to come back with a really stupid arachnid body, why can't Mace Windu come back? Why does Darth Maul have an arachnid body? It doesn't even. <laughs> what's your What's your pitch for he comes back? The show's announced tomorrow. What's the show? I, look, I have to think about it a little bit, but he definitely doesn't come <laughs> back with a, a spider abdomen. Just give him the eight legs. Why did he have to have the, the earth spider butt? It's like <laughs> weird. There's some weird stuff. You know, he can come back, but he didn't have to come back as such. Um, Like everybody comes back in Star Wars. 
you know? Yes. And the Emperor comes back in a very merciless kind of way. He can't be defeated. So, of course, Mace Windu's still out there. What did he lose? He lost his hand and he fell out of a building. (laughs) Soft landing on a canopy. Every week, someone gets stabbed in the gut through the heart in Ahsoka and they come back. The Inquisitor came back in Obi-Wan. He was murdered in cold blood and he's up. Every single two, person just gets up. Two people were stabbed in the gut. Yeah, Reva got stabbed by Reva as well in Obi-Wan. Yeah. You can't do that once, let alone twice in a show. Sabine, <laughs> she gets stabbed. Uh, you can, lightsabers don't work as well anymore. I think that's what we're realizing. Mace Windu uh, is totally fine. The sabers are set to stop. All right. So, so in closing, we're looking at, so this is what our job here is to get this going. We have uh, Kyle Newman's going to do the Mace Windu pitch. We have the trilogy coming up and some Stranger Things D&D stuff. Uh, so we'll try to get we'll try to get the buzz out there going and get people behind it because well, uh, I, I, I have like a standalone it. Star Wars movie, too. That's that is. All right, so that's four. OK, fire. It's a one off like nothing. What era? No one's ever done the Star Wars. That one's cool, too. What era Where does that it? take place? Uh, that's 400 years before uh, Phantom Menace. So okay. you're 500 after and fi- 400 before. It could be three. Yeah, it's it's in an era with only Yoda mentioned in dialogue. There's no no characters. You, could, you, you want to be the bookends on the shelf of all the Blu-rays. That's why there, I see what's it, it's a the, each one. The reason I'm picking it's not arbitrary. There's a very specific mm. reason, and especially the one in the future. There's a reason. The I Force gotcha. manifests and speaks and produces what it needs in order to help usher in eras on its own. It it gifted us a virgin birth in the form of Anakin. And um, I don't know, like there's a certain, certain things happening throughout where if you were, if you had a balanced society, what would you do if anomalies in the future, knowing what you know, started to show up, you wouldn't allow for Anakin's or Ray's or people that could upset create tumult in the galaxy and they'd probably do things in the order of balance, not realizing that there was a perverseness to it. Mm. And the force may have to react in a way where the force wants to be broken free and wild again, not necessarily balanced. Oh, that's interesting. And, and predicted. It wants to you have to start with a big idea and then figure out where it is from the but there isn't like an understanding of the ebb and flow of the force and the cosmic force. And I think that's something and it's not like a way where it's like, you know, Mortis and these demigods and stuff. It's the force in a deep spiritual faceless power, you know? Um, Not even like it's conscious in that way, but there's certain things, you know, like how a creature could reproduce, even if there was no male mate, a female dinosaur might still produce an egg like Jurassic Park. Yeah. Or or gravity. Gravity is not a person, but it's an entity that we, we, we can't understand it. We sort of understand it. We think we understand it. But the more we learn about it, the more it explains like so much about the galaxy. Where we're like, that doesn't even apply to gravity. But it's yeah. like, but gravity it's does it all. Endure. Like it, it birthed Anakin for a reason, 
you know, the son mm-hmm. of sons. He's a virgin birth. He's a Hercules. He's a Merlin. He's like a character that came from, from nothing. So the force is at play in a different way in the future. And I would say the organized world is doing things in a way where they think they're honoring the past, but it's actually um, broken. I I like that idea because I like the idea of the force being sort of um, mystical again and like us not being able to quantify it and that sort of thing. Uh, so I like that idea. No, yeah, and all falls in, there's it falls on the shoulders of someone that that's got to <laughs> figure things out. And... All right, we got to make this happen, Kyle. We got we got to get we're gonna get it <laughs> out there. And, and I'm telling you, it's, it's Star Wars, dude. People will lose their minds. It's pretty damn original and awesome. Um, yeah, you get to the end of it and you're like, it's like Planet of the Apes. You're like, this is oh my god, it's Star Wars movie. Holy shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like that. It, it's different. Nice. All right. It's different. And they need they need to do different stuff. You know they they need to get away from yep. this this era. Well, we started sure. the make soul two happen thing, so maybe we can uh, make Kyle Newman happen. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Let's, Put, let's, me in, uh, Coach. Put me yeah. in. Put me in. Um. So, Kyle, for for our audience, you know, what do you have? I know you mentioned a few things, but things that are coming up that people should check out or things that you want them to check out that exist now, uh, you know, let them know what they can check out that you have going on uh, now and in yeah, the future. At the end of last year, we put out Heroes Feast 2, which is the sequel to our first D&D cookbook, and Lore and Legends, which was the sequel to Art and Arcana. It's a D&D visual history of the current iteration of the game. And then the Heroes Feast TV show launched in the fall too on Freebie and Plex. So it's a cooking show based on our book. So that's all out in the world now. I have the D&D doc, which is coming. It's on the 50th anniversary, 50-year history of Dungeons & Dragons coming later this year. And also the Disturbance in the Force is now on on VOD, but that'll be coming to a a streaming platform probably around May the 4th. Um, So keep your eyes peeled. And there's, there's there's just a lot more. I'm working on some new books, graphic novels, um, there's another venture that's happening soon, um, in the world of coffee, um, pop culture, coffee, a lot of cool IPs, um, that announcement's coming in the next couple of weeks and that stuff's coming next month. So, uh, there's some different, different things in the works. All right. Booked and busy. Yeah. Well, trying to stay busy. <laughs> well I gotta say it's, you know, it's been an, uh, a pleasure to have you on, uh, you're, easy to talk to down to earth for someone who's done a lot, uh, in that oh, business. And, uh, thanks for shedding light on how things work and also having some fun with us. And hopefully you're down to come back on and nerd out with us in the future. Maybe after acolyte during acolyte, something like that, we can get into some dark side force talk. Absolutely. Hit me up. I'm down. I can't wait to watch acolyte. I think bad batch is going to be great. I love skeleton bad crew coming this year too. That looks great. I love it all. Awesome. I'm Kyle, thank you so much for being here on TRB and we look forward to chatting with you down the road. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, pal. There it is. We hope you enjoyed our interview with Kyle Newman. Uh, thank you again to Kyle for hopping in the resistance base with us. Generous with your time, wonderful stories, and uh, potential pitches. So we're putting it out in the universe. We want Kyle Newman in the mix with Stranger Things, but of course, Star Wars. He wants to go 400 years back, 500 years in the future. Uh, 
let's do it. Let's see what he has uh, to bring to the galaxy because he clearly loves this stuff. He gets this stuff. And uh, he just more importantly than not, just like with anytime we have a guest on that seems so genuine and down to earth, but also that they're passionate about this stuff. You want to root for that. And Kyle falls in line with that sort of like it reminds me of when we had Taylor Gray on or something. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So, right. 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 Just a great chat. Um, all right. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if you guys had anything else you wanted to expand upon that. You're like, yes. What, yes. what do you think was the most exciting thing that he said in your guys' opinion? Because for me, I think it's it's his his sort of reinvention of Star Wars by sort of, and I'm putting words in his mouth here, but like sort of like rebooting the force, like in saying like it has to go through cycles and like you can reinvent what the force is capable of. Um, yeah, j- just him saying do something different. Uh, yeah. I think because he gets the blueprint of how to make it feel like Star Wars, but he wants to take it and just open blank canvas, do something completely different with it. So that's and my- more fantasy and romance. Everybody knows that. As soon yeah. as he said that, I was like dialed in. I was like, tell me more, because he yeah. agrees. Like that's missing. And, yeah. and everything doesn't have to be Andor. I, I loved when he said that. Not everything in Star Wars has to be Andor. Right. Andor's yeah. great, but not everything has to be that. And I have said that before. I'm like, not everything has to be this dark, gritty thing. It could just be a fun thing. And it doesn't make it less valuable than the dark, gritty thing. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And if you did happen to enjoy this episode, please be sure to let Kyle know. Obviously, he's on social media. Kyle, give him a follow. follow him, let him know. Yeah, yeah. Follow Kyle at Kyle underscore Newman. Uh, I'm not sure what other platforms he's on. He's on uh, Twitter, aka X. But and check out all the stuff that he plugged. Um, but let him know what you thought about this episode because you know, as we told him, we'd love to have him back. So thanks again to Kyle for joining us. First guest of 2024 and a great one, in my opinion. I think this is when the end of year rolls around and we look back in this year, this is going to be one of those episodes where we're like, man, that was a lot of fun talking to Kyle. So hopefully we have more of those in the future. I'm proud Um, of it for not saying Kyle. (laughs) Oh, yeah, that's true. I was going to say it's kind of like a uh, a back pocket brag sometimes. Like I I really am excited to anytime anybody ever brings up fanboys, I'm going to be like, I have the director on on my show. I, so I it's agree. So cool. It's, it's very cool to have him on. Um, all right. So and and thank you to everybody for listening and watching and being a part of TRB. Uh, our patrons at patreon.com slash resistance broadcast. Thank you so much for all your support. Uh, if you haven't yet, check out the page. We have exclusive episodes on there. And I know we're always thinking about new ideas to bring to the page, but Ultimately, thank you for all your support and a special thank you to our generals and spice runners, uh, Carmelo, John Reese, Jetta Rosewater, Frank Grande, Nick Kratz, Chris Morales, Brian Smith, Matt Chitty, Danny, Mike Ramori, Brendan McLaughlin, Sneaky Zebra, Colin Cormier, Dave Hornack, and Jolton Jedi DiMaggio, and the spice runners, David Probus, Neil Shaw, Kendall Gellner, Andrew Staley, Jeremy Myers, and the Fort Worthian. Uh, social media for us, Johnny Hoey for me, uh, and Lacey, the, the big return. Happy People- birthday. <laughs> where can they go to wish you said happy birthday people can find me on social media at Lacey Gillerin on tiktok at it's Lacey Gillerin. uh thank you in advance for any birthday messages i appreciate them and welcome back i love that she waits for her birthday to come back um <laughs> i did it on purpose james what if your birthday was in like july <laughs> what if my birthday was i'm in never july? um <laughs> <laughs> James, your birthday is in December. December. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. 
But uh, where can people not wish you a happy birthday on social media? Um, anywhere except for at Myra Trunks. There you go. Perfect. All right. Thank you, everybody. Uh, we hope you have a wonderful week. Um, we're not positive on our schedule for this week, but as always, stay tuned and we'll be with you. Uh, James is going to be hitting you with the Bad Batch reaction right. show on the first three episodes of season three, which we haven't really talked about it, but I think it's a good idea to get that up on the audio platforms as well. Uh, so people can get uh, your thoughts on Bad Batch. And I mean, we all had a chance to check out the first eight and I think people are in for a real treat with Bad Batch. Uh, yeah, Bad Batch. I think it might be the best season so far. Yeah, yeah. people are going to love it. Yeah. All right, everybody. Thank you all so much. Uh, and again, make sure you hit up Kyle and let's root for Kyle and get that out in, into the manifestation of content or filmmaking, what have you. And we'll, from the three of us here, we'll see you next time right here on the Resistance Broadcast. See you around, kids. Bye.